This is Coda Radio, episode 355 for April 29th, 2019. Dakota Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business, software development, and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by Mr. Michael Dominic. Welcome to the show, Mike. Well, a wubba-dub-dub and a hippity-hop. Happy uh, Coda Radio to you, Mr. Payne. Oh, I'm always happy to be there. And, you know, I'm glad I'm here today because... We got a lot to talk about. You know, this is a thick, juicy, beyond burger of a show. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we find actually, well, sure, sometimes we find it, you know, whatever Mike drags into the show. Oh, jeez. But many many of those things, well, actually, they come from you, our our wonderful audience. If you go to our website, uh, coder.show, coder.show slash contact, there's a contact form. You just write it in. You can be anonymous if you want. You can tell us your name. Let us know what you think. It just helps us make a better show, and sometimes it gives us great stuff to talk about. So I was thinking today, let's start off with some feedback. All right, so this one's this one's for me. Tom wrote in to talk about, uh, in a recent episode, we were talking about Chrome OS and Windows, um, actually. It was 353, a week with WSL, when, Mike, you were telling me all about your recent adventures over in the subsystem, and we were kind of pondering things about, like, what does this mean for desktop Linux? And what about Chrome OS? <laughs> and Tom wrote in, Wes, it hurt me when you said that there is little <laughs> difference between Windows and Chrome OS. He, he breaks it down for us. Chrome OS is open source versus closed Windows, free versus paid, an open standards-based platform, meaning the web here, versus proprietary, no bloatware versus tons of bloat, and no ads versus some small ads in Windows. Small, <laughs> small, yeah. I mean, that, that's up to the um, the observer, okay, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your DPI spam is in the eye of the beholder. But keep going. Huh. And finally, Chrome OS is Linux. So although Google's version comes with telemetry, just like Windows, Tom notes, people are free to avoid that by building their own. So we have things like Cloud Ready, which is excellent in my opinion. And you know what? I think I think Tom's pretty much spot on here. There are ways in which I think about them in the same context, just in that they come from this big company and have been bundled and stuff. And, you know, you might ne- not necessarily be able to build the exact version that, that gets configured and shipped on your machine. But there are still a lot of differences as platforms, especially when you compare it to the closed world of Windows. And while they both might let you run Linux apps, they're obviously doing it in a very different way. Sure. I mean, Wes, this was direct directed at you, so... Chime in. Come on. The water's fine. Uh, can I say a pox on both your houses? I, mean, I think you just did. Yeah. I, I more agree with you, Wes, than I do the writer, but yeah, you both suck. Just go buy like a, a XPS or like a Galago or something. I don't know. If you want to run Linux, run Linux. Like... I've never, you can ask Chris, I, in years of this show, I've always been kind of like skeptical of Chrome OS. 
um, especially when they added the sort of ability to run and was it Android apps or Linux apps first? I can't remember. Uh, Android, then like regular. It was Android, Linux. then like Debs. Yeah, right? I, be- I believe so. Yeah, but it's 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 basically Deb packages, right? Or I mean, they are just running Linux applications. You know, I haven't actually played around with how the packaging works. So, full disclosure here. I'm very ignorant of Chrome OS. I had a sales guy who I bought a Chromebook when they first came out. Like, we're talking six years ago, seven years ago. Crap, we're talking like eight years ago. And he had it for two months, and then I just like bought him a Surface because it just wasn't good enough, right? Like, mm, yeah, it just it wasn't meeting your needs. So, Overly restricted, maybe. Well, like, like, yeah, like he needed. I hate to use the 90s term. He didn't like multimedia functionality that at the time, remember we're going back like seven to eight years here, wasn't exactly possible. I will give Chrome OS one thing in the demos I've seen. It is a lot better than it used to be, right? Just as web apps are better than they used to be. But I I don't know what to say, Wes. I mean, I, I, at your shop over there, are they running a lot of Chrome OS no, not not that I'm aware of. It seems yeah. like its main inroads have just been in, in education, schools, um, maybe some sort of uh, enterprise like casual handout use. Yeah, at the Mad Botter, we're um, we're Linux and Mac, and we obviously have Windows partitions for you know testing compatibility. We do sell some software on Windows, um, but we're I am not a Chrome customer. I am not a Chrome OS user. Um, it's hard for me to kind of weigh in intelligently. If you if you had a, a, a Chromebook that was suitably powerful and you know had a nice Google maintained system, nice and clean, you just showed up and it works. You open the laptop, you know that they're handling most of the stuff, and you can install all your favorite desktop, uh, you know, Electron Linux applications, and you could have a real development environment. Would you Would you use it? <laughs> I mean, if that's the case, sure, but isn't that just like Pop OS? Isn't that just an, uh, another version of Ubuntu now? I guess, I guess I'm missing something. I think the worry is um, not not the personal aspect. I think is is the nature of this because yes, right? Like personally, just just on Linux, I love that. That was a, that's a great comment that you made. No, I'm not. Tr- I'm not trying to be a troll. Like no, no, no. I like I like it. I just mean like it may be that the you know end users. It's not. They, that's not. Yes, it is an option, but. They're gonna get the choice of like a Windows, Windows and Chromebook, or or maybe a Mac, right? Like in their day to day lives. Sure. So I think that's where a lot of the hope around Chrome OS is coming from. Is like, hey, look, it is Linux, and it's becoming kind of like real, more real Linux, even if it's so, not perfect. I mean, to more to answer your question in a, I guess like a fuller way, I have never been shy about spending money on computers. Listen to the back catalog, right, folks? Um, so I would never buy a Chromebook because I just wouldn't, right? Like, I don't know. I really will buy whatever the sexy new uh, XPS or System76 Linux laptop is. Or if I need a Mac, I will buy a brand new Mac Mini. I, I All right, let me, let me break it down. Other than education, I don't understand the Chromebook as a product. Given that if I have people who aren't doing dev or engineering, Windows-based laptops are so cheap. In fact, if I buy a Windows laptop and I throw a XFCE, by the way, please listen to Choose Linux on Jupyter Broadcasting. No one forced me to do this, by the way. This is voluntary. 
it turns out that XFCE, which for those who don't know is a Linux desktop environment, uses basically no memory and is super fast on shitty hardware you can buy in Best Buy. So like for me, for my purposes as a guy who runs a dev shop, if I have like a sales guy or a customer service rep and if he or she like doesn't want to run Windows because he wants to be part of the yeah, and I've had this happen, Wes, where like they don't want to be the odd man out. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's right. just social pressures, there, right. right? Like we are a Mac and Linux shop, right? Like we're you know, and each of us also each of us have a Mac and Linux machine, but for mm, one one yeah. hardcore Mac guy. But like, I don't know. I would just like buy him a HP or a Dell at Best Buy and like slap ubuntu xfce edition on that and like i I guess where does chrome educate me where would chrome come in chrome os rather come into this conversation that i'm not understanding Uh, i mean i think i think it would mostly probably be for larger organizations where you had a lot of overhead you know where you where you did need some of those enterprise controls to manage rollouts and and submissions and so that's that's what i see a lot of this debate like personally in my own life I I'm actually I'm thinking about buying one just to play with it because the the tech is interesting behind it, but I don't really need it and I don't see myself using it just because I am comfortable with the administrative overhead of regular operating systems. But if you're the IT guy and you don't need like 50 different people all trying to do their own and attempting to manage security updates on the various developer laptops that they have, maybe that gets you a little scared if you're from a sysadmin background. That I think is a lot of the Google's so play here. Is is this like an enterprise play, basically? I mean, there's or, definitely that angle, yeah. Right? Okay, and that's same same right. in the schools because you can you know you get it out, they'll they'll get you set up, and then the IT staff can administer it and make sure that they're wiped. And there's the security aspect of you know it's it's more sandboxed and it's it's hard to install the things you want maybe, but as a result, people just aren't going to break them. Fair enough. Well, we spent 10 minutes on Chrome OS just now, which I yeah. think is 11 minutes more than we should. So let's Way move more, forward. Yeah. yeah. For the record, uh, Mike remains questionable about Chrome OS. I, I liked your comment, though. You, you brought up your willingness, let's, let's say willingness, to buy new hardware. <laughs> that is, I think, one of the reasons um, that we should move on to this next feedback topic, because... Let me brace for impact, then. Yeah, hardware, um, it comes up sometimes. Andy writes in to us, in a recent episode, you guys were talking about some people on Reddit, I'll put that in scare quotes, really hate when there are discussions about hardware. And that it's probably just, you know, one person with two accounts. Now, I'm not that person, but I also dislike you guys talking about hardware. In fact, about a year or two ago, it seemed like half of every second episode, or about 25% of the show, was about hardware. I very nearly removed the show from my podcast app, but, well, I, I didn't have anything better to replace it. What I like about this is he next writes, the hosts of the show are interesting to listen to. Unfortunately, that only goes so far when the content itself doesn't interest me. To be clear, I don't expect you to change anything, as I'm just one person. If you have more listeners that enjoy what you're talking about, well, then it doesn't make sense to stop. I'm just letting you know there's here's one in that other column. Thank you for the generally entertaining show. Yeah, so this is a point, Wes, where you can do arbitration, and Chris can't defend himself, but I think I'm going to defend myself and Chris a little bit here. So this show is old, Wes, right? Like, you know, you're new to it. Yeah, this is episode 355. And as podcasts go, you know, and I've been the host of the show for a long time, I would argue 
before I hit his actual points, one of the 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 main Achilles heel of Coda Radio is that it's Coda Radio, not Linux coding radio or like iOS development radio. So it's so broad that you always end up covering a lot of things. Like we just did last episode, we talked about what Erlang, Closure. I think I threw an F-sharp reference somewhere, right? You sure did. And before that, we talked about Rust. And before that, I think I talked about Swift at some maybe a few weeks ago. So the hardware stuff has been a back and forth. Um, what I will say is I think there's a balance. For instance, this eGPU, you know, I'm using an eGPU for a job right now. I have had a lot of people reach out to me on Twitter or via email asking details about the eGPU. I definitely get the, you know, which Linux distro are you running or are you running Mac or Linux this week? I get it. It kind of doesn't matter for the context of the show. But it's definitely a hard balance, right? Like the analogy I like to make is if this was carpentry radio, you know, like a carpenter, right? It would be totally appropriate to talk about, well, do you like Black & Decker or do you like Craftsman tools, right? Like, and, and why? I It's my opinion that that's an appropriate conversation to have. Mm, yeah, right. I mean, they're, they're parts of your trade. It's not the direct work right. and it's not a show about making hammers, but well, you're using a hammer. So I would argue a different point. So, Okay, whether I'm running an SPS 13 or a Dart or Pro, I get it. It's just like a vendor difference. But how about if I switch from, let's say, OpenStack to Kubernetes? Well, that's worth talking about, right? Yeah, I, w- I would say so. And that would be a, that would be the title of the show. So at that point, I'm going to just leave that analogy with you and say, Wes, you are the only innocent man here. You're the only non-convicted uh, hardware addict here. Judge me and Chris for the last six years. Go ahead. Judge, jury, executioner. All right. Well, in my, in my previous existence as a Just Coder Radio fan. Well, and you, you did host another show, though, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just, but just thinking about it from that perspective, I, I think it was just, um, you know, it happened to be, too, the, the nature of, of the hosts. So not only is it something that, that you need to use for your job and spend time thinking about because you're, you know, you're a craftsman and you, you, you want to work with good tools and those tools do affect your ability to get work done. So you talk about it. Secondly, you're just flat out cursed. So you just break everything that comes into contact with you. So that also has led it's to just being talk, hardware talking about like a little bit more. I buy laptops seemingly once a decade. Um, so, you know, that, that shift things, although maybe that'll, that might change in the future now that, now that we have, you're influencing me. Well, a little, little defense here. I also, because of the type of work I do, particularly in the aerospace industry, I get hardware where I do the work on the hardware and then have to ship it back. Right. So there's just a lot of transient hardware flowing through your life. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of churn. Right. I would also say it was a topic that I enjoyed listening to you and Chris talk about. Because you came at it from different perspectives, but it was an area that you could really meet in the middle. From his perspectives, using using hardware for one purpose and watching the industry for a long time, and yours from from another angle. So it was a fun way to interconnect and sort of talk about this stuff in a little, not just from a consumer angle. I guess that's the point that I liked. Because if we're just talking about things that we're using from day to day life, okay, that's fine. That's less relevant. But if it's if it's tooling that you use to get your job done, to do development, to do programming, or anything in that area. I think it just makes sense. Yeah, I would add, I mean, we we went into a cursory explanation about three weeks ago that at some point, 
we have to talk again about eGPUs because all of mine and uh, Chris's agonizing over my potential ideal workstation, I might not give this eGPU back, Wes. I, I might just say, like, you know, I spilled a martini on it. Everybody would believe that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I am shocked at how good Thunderbolt supported I know I'm taking a tangent, but, you know, indulge me, it's Easter. I am shocked, or two weeks from it, how good eGPU support is on a, a modern Linux kernel. Like, this is, this is awesome. Like, I am not a big gamer. You know, I, I've uh, gone into the Telegram, into the, the IRC a few times, asked for gamer. But, you know, I'm a mm-hmm. two, you know, I, I'll play like a casual 2D game, right? But yeah. for ML programming, for just like compiling big pieces of like, just like lots of code. Oh my God. If you are a developer who just spent, you know, 2000 and up on a laptop and you're annoyed you don't have a dedicated graphics card, honestly, and I'll drop it here, consider an eGPU. Because when you're at your office, you're at your home office, if in my case I work from home, you plug it in via Thunderbolt, it's great. But if you need to be on the road, you just run on the Intel uh, graphics processor. Lean and mean. And you have your right. You have your battery life to do your PowerPoint or whatever you're doing. Uh, in my case, it's uh, whatever the hell the Librium Office version of PowerPoint is. But presentations, uh, impress, whatever. It's the built-in one to uh, Pop OS. It's great, and I and I do think it's important, right? Because it, particularly because we have a bent towards independent software developers. If you're right. a one man band, you don't want to have to spend, you know. And and frankly, we've had a history of covering Mac development and iOS development. You don't want to spend, you know, seven thousand dollars on a Mac Pro, which is what I'm getting guessing they're going to cost in June. We'll find out in a few months, and then another two and a half thousand on the MacBook uh, MacBook Pro to carry. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just buy the MacBook Pro, or if you're not a Mac guy, buy the you know XPS or the Darter or whatever or whatever, but get the best of both worlds? Is that insane, Wes? Like, am I? No, honestly, it sounds kind of like the perfect unicorn right. situation. Because like I have this OWC eGPU enclosure here, I can pop out the Radeon Sapphire card I have in if a better one comes out in a year, and all I have to pay for is the card. Mm, the enclosure still works. You just swap them out, and suddenly it's like buying a nicer computer with with a better graphics card. It's the whole new world, right? Like, like I have to say, like I was telling my wife, and to say that her eyes glazed over is a wild understatement, because uh, apparently she found this boring. But like, yeah. I don't need to spend money on computers now. Like, I have good enough computers. But maybe I could like buy a nicer monitor, right? And then in a year, I buy a nicer card to go into the eGPU uh, container. I forgot the word. Uh, the eGPU dock. No. Case. The hell they call them us. I was just going to let you try to figure it out because I was, I was enjoying it. I can't remember. But let's just call it the eGPU container because I like, you know. Enclosure. Docker. Enclosure. Thank you. And wow, I have a new computer. But when I'm on the road and I'm giving a presentation, I still have my beautiful eight hours of battery life. Right. I don't know. And we'll drop the hardware thing from here. But yeah, we're going to cover eGPU stuff because I I think it's a game changer, especially for independent guys like me. And Wes, I think it's a game changer for you because you're amazing and we need you rendered in the highest detail possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you've been making all those face swaps between me and Jar Jar, and, you know, that that just takes a lot of time it's to true. compute. I made the face swap, swap between uh, Chris and Darth Maul, although nothing happened. It was kind of weird. Eerily the same. Anyway, you're right. That's it's, it's time to move on from that. Thank yeah. you for writing in, Andy. I appreciate that your your feedback was nuanced and oh, we always appreciate the feedback, right? Like, keep writing in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely do. Yeah, and um, I like that you took into the account that you know people like different things, and, and that's just how it is. We think a lot about it too. So, for something completely different, Mike, you've been trying to get us to include this in the show for like a like a hot minute, and I was like, what is this? I'm not I'm not really caught up. Now's the time. I'm really confused. As someone who uh, ends up, you know, running things like Qt, the the framework, it, you know, it, I'm running I'm running the Plasma desktop, so it's it's in my everyday. I've never really understood the dual licensing and like how the licensing requirements work. So, Wes, you have the benefit of again all these topics. You are not involved in directly. I am unburdened and innocent. There is an application known as Griffin. Which I'm, I'm sure you know, a little company called the Madbotter made. Love it. It is a radar, radar display system for fighter and now bomber jets. FYI, there was a version of it written in Cute, and then a wonderful young man named Mike called the Cute company in Boston and said, "Hey, we'd like a license. What can we do here? We think we're okay with the GPL, but you know, I'd like to talk. And if we're not, let's, you know." Before I sold anything, I'm going to be super clear. So would my lawyer, before we sold anything. And the cute people, the gentleman I spoke to was basically like, no, you need a proprietary license, and it's a lot of money. So we RMFR'd the, uh, the entire project. And then we sponsored... Wait, Avalo- the entire the, the entire, the entire project? source code base, yeah. Wow. Uh, we start, we sponsored Avalonia, which is the uh, cross-platform .NET open source toolkit, and rewrote the entire thing in .NET with Windows support first, and then eventually we added Linux support in about a month. So this was like a this was a major derailment for not only the project but the company. This was a tens of thousand dollar loss for me personally, like for wow. For my, yeah. Turns out, and so funny, a listener of the show sent this video to me. And in fact, in fact, he makes IoT boards, and we're going to be evaluating them soon. There's been so much confusion for the Q company about the licensing that they've made a very helpful, very detailed video on it. I've watched the whole thing three times. It's their attorney, right? It's a video made by attorneys. And this isn't – I mean, this is like a 57-minute video, so that's a, that's a lot. Yeah, this is going into theoretical cases and legalities of using – uh, the GPL and the LGPL and proprietary software. I don't want to get in a fight about proprietary software. Just right now, the way my business is, I like everything's. I just have to, right? Like everything's proprietary. Proprietary software is not ethical. Uh, one day you'll have that last cheeseburger. Uh, <laughs> right, but yeah, I mean, you you're making software, and uh, I'm sure if your customers were like, let's make it open source. Okay, cool. But then I would go with it, right? And I will say, weak contribute back as much as our customers allow us to which i know is like a lame defense but unfortunately that's the way contracts are written i don't want to get into it too much but uh, yeah i mean you're, yeah. you're running a business you got bills to pay we'll move on we're a consulting we're a dev shop right we are at the mercy of our customers yeah well it turns out that our exact use case was completely okay under the gpl oh really 
even regardless of what the person you talked to as their long organization as they told could you. upgrade the version of Q and put another Q binary in the place of the Q we were giving them, we were fine. Really? So this is kind of a because we got a lot of feedback on this, Wes. We got a lot of feedback on this Q stuff. If you are considering Q for a project, check out this video. I have to say it hasn't changed my position only because in the intervening time, I now have a major project written on .NET. I've joined the .NET Foundation. We've open sourced .NET code. Like you kind of you you found a new a new home. I sort of got married, right? Like we're we're doing a lot of .NET work. I I I can't deny that I would have preferred to have originally shipped this in Qt, but you know when the rep tells you that you'll be in violation of the license. You, you don't you don't do it right like that's that's just that's life yeah, right yeah right. how that's just a bad idea right. if you're gonna and then even right we see this all the time like any kinds of lack of clarity in licensing yeah it's just it's not a good risk that you can take you're just asking for a lawsuit down the road right and for a little company like the mad botter we would be destroyed by that right like that would it'd be bang it, it would kill us reflecting back on it now that you're now that you're here and on the other side of this little debacle did you did you like the? I'm interested. So licensing aside, what's the what was the difference like when you? I mean, you had to do switch all kinds of stuff. You know what? I liked Q um, as an experienced Objective C developer, which I have to mention in every show. C is very comfortable for me to work in, but I have to be honest with you. I'm going to answer a different question. I should have listened to the JB community. Yeah, that's just always true. They were, and you can scroll up in Telegram. They were hollering at me that you are not violating the license. Go ahead and ship. Don't worry about it. And you know what? They were absolutely correct. Now, they did not offer to pay your legal bills. Well, no, but you know what? But it's good advice. The GPL is, I got to tell you, the GPL is a tough document to really understand, right? Especially the V3 version with the TiVo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. anti-TiVoization stuff. What is TiVoization, right? Like, is it if I show them a demo on a computer that I own, it's not like TiVoization. It's all crazy. I would say that, it's funny, the things I like about Q are not the things the salesmen want to sell you on. So like, yeah, just maybe expand a little bit on that last point. So the the things you like versus what they're actually trying to make money on sure so uh, so a lot of effort has gone into like not have you write into c plus plus for q um and i'm not talking about qml which is uh for those right who okay know, that's q, what i say qml is like their markup language it can do some logic but it, think of it like um it's like presentation versus code kind of right yeah like think about like android xml right you can do some stuff but not you're not going to write your whole app in qml if your app is you know as complicated as the radar display, for sure. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But like there's a Python extension to Qt that we actually covered on the show. There's JavaScript extensions. So add, yeah, adding more bindings, adding more ways to use Qt without having to use C. I think there's a Java one, but I'm not entirely I think that might be no, a community right project, that. not a uh, officially blessed one. But I liked it because it was C. Right. And that, you know, for my business as a dev shop. Just saying, okay, we all have to work in C++, but really simplify everything that I'm doing. Yeah, and I imagine that there's, um, you know, that that's not an uncommon choice in some of the areas that you're playing with in aerospace or aeronautics. Right, keep in stuff. mind, like, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of gloss over this, but like, we build web systems all the time. But like, our 
our niche is really aerospace. I'm still surprised we don't talk about Ada more often. We could. (laughs) (laughs) That's for another show. I don't know how to do that in a 45-minute format. Oh, man, we should. Actually, Ada was one of the first languages I studied in my own computer science education. I, I tell you what, then. You know, my birthday's in June. We can have a Mike's birthday episode, and you and I can go 13 rounds on Ada. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right. Um, but obviously, so like, okay, so since Wes brought it up, in the aerospace industry, there's a few standards, right? There is old stuff. I call it Ada. There's like down to the hardware C, C++, which is where I kind of need to be. There's .NET. There's like a lot of .NET. Oh, really? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of .NET. There's some Java on the back of Office stuff, but very rare. To be honest, you're looking at C++ and .NET and some Ada, but that's like Ada's its own thing. I, maybe a better way to say this: you have embedded, you have application, and then you have back of Office. Mm, yes, that makes sense. The beautiful thing about Qt was it could have been the embedded, the application, and the Rails could have still been the back of Office, right? Mm, so you could have just knocked out those other two parts. You've already obviously everything very comfortable with Rails. Mm-hmm. Right. Which, from a hiring and management perspective, would have made my life tremendously easier. So now, because of the licensing, I'll call it confusion, what's happened is embedded is Rust in one case, but also .NET. Because it turns out Microsoft will throw money at any problem you put in front of them. Wait, really? I didn't know you could do embedded with .NET. You can do near native performance C sharp and F sharp. Wow, and that's is that still with um, like garbage collection in that, or is like a more minimal runtime? That's a simple question to complicate. Yes, you do have garbage collection, but not not the normal garbage collection you have on uh, right. Know, it's different yeah. algorithms, a different garbage collector targeted for that. You also don't have the entire .NET ecosystem to work with. There's a NuGet, right? There's you know mm, you can't pull right. in a NuGet package and be like, oh, great. Like it's very constrained. But if you if you use a constrained subset of the language and dependencies, then yeah. Well, and frankly, I've been unfair. I when I said C sharp, yes, it's possible, but I really mean F sharp, right? We do F sharp. I love that. Yeah, because it's performance wise, you're already paying a penalty for having the CLR, which for those who don't know is uh, the common language runtime, which if you if you're a Java developer, you have the JVM between Java. Yeah, yeah okay. So Google it if you don't know. Um, and we do some .NET applications. A lot of, like Griffin itself is a .NET application. And we do some line of business apps, which could easily be written in .NET instead of Rails, right? But it didn't, like that's where we are now. So the only difference is between what I've just described and what we're doing is like our back of office is Rails for reasons that we have our own stuff that works in Rails and it's great. I, I don't understand Maybe this is where Wes can help a little bit. Why there's so much complication around the licensing of Q? I mean, even even ignoring all the stuff I said about the CLR for .NET, like ignore mm, the right. technical details, which is weird for a show called Radio. The fact that you can call a Q rep and get a straight answer on something feels like a problem. Like, I don't know. I'm from New Jersey, right? If I ask you a question and you don't answer my question, like. 
I think it's because you want the right to sue me later. <laughs> right. Basically. Yeah, that makes right. sense. That's so Wes, I don't know. What do you I, I just threw a lot of data out. What do you think? No, I, I can certainly understand um why it would be attractive. Yeah, you know C and even outside of that, there's there's plenty of bindings for things. I can see why, you know, they the that why they're the base fee might be a lot, um, because you know, obviously a lot it's all also GPL. So they have to have some sort of revenue stream. And that is why your your point makes so much more sense because why their whole thing should be to make it as super simple so that if you want to pay the money or even think that you might want to pay the money uh, to negotiate with them, that should be clear and easy to do. Because otherwise, you're just going to be confused. If you can't get a clear answer when you have a complicated dual licensing sort of thing, and you see it all the time on Hacker News or anything else for you know some new open core sort of system or all these various in-betweens on different open source styles of, of business running. And you, and someone asks some questions about like, is this covered by the licensing? And someone immediately pops in the comments and goes, Oh, here, DM me. Let's talk about this offline. We can, we'll get you all the information you need. Now, do we know how those conversations go all the time? Absolutely not. But you gotta hope and assume that the majority of them are better than what you described. Yeah. And I, you know, in defense of Q, like, the the gentleman who I was talking to has reached out to me several times. They are not happy that we went to .NET. And to say they're not happy is a giant understatement. They feel that basically, you know, the rep didn't understand our technical case. And it turns out we could have done it the whole time, blah, 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 right? Like, mm, yeah, it's... <sighs> You know, I am not the biggest, um, and we should move on, but I'm not the biggest GPL hippie on the network, right? Like I'm, you know, originally I was the iOS and Mac guy here. If you think that having GPL software in industry is good, you can't have this constant threat of legal action. Because, you know, a lot of the big applications that you think about are written by small subcontracting companies like mine. And I'm not trying to like make this Mike's bitching hour, but like it, it just is the case that, you know, I, I have employees, right? Like I, I can't use technology that I think that I will be sued for. Does that? Oh yeah, that's just absolutely. It's not just you. It's not you as an individual person. You, you have a whole organization, right? Like my employees have kids. Like there's a whole like, you know. So I'm in this weird place where, again. I think .NET is great. I'm a member of the .NET Foundation. I support financially .NET projects. I would have preferred to use Q. But because of the legal risk, I didn't. And, you know, I'm not, quote, a member of the open source community. I don't think I am. That's Chris's thing and maybe your thing. But I think you all should think about that before you... I don't know, like we have the RMS stingers, right? We have the RMS sound bites, and it's like, well, the answer to that is I'm just not going to use it. Right. If it's if it's so difficult or off-putting, then... Or scary. If you can't give me a straight answer, right, are you going to sue me or are you not? Yep. Yeah. I, I like that because it is like people do think it's great, right? I mean, Qt is popular for partly, I think, because, you know, it's easy to get started. All the advantages that come from open source. But you're right. Many businesses find the GPL to be toxic. And I think just some of this uncertainty is often the reason why. Even if you get past the philosophy, even if you're like, yeah, you're right. I, I do want to give back. Well, you were trying. 
Well, we would contribute back. Like the sick part is we have contributed back to .NET projects. We contributed back to Rust projects only because I could not justify the legal risk of using Q is why we didn't do it. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. That's an interesting case study, and um, I think something we'll have to watch. I'm I'm kind of happy about it just because I think it did mean it gave you it forced you to do a little bit more rust, and that has led to a lot of great content for this show and our next story today. You know, Wes, I'd like to put a pin in this if I can. Oh, please do. Rust is moving fast, so by the time this airs, I'm sure there'll be five more versions. <laughs> but in Rust version one point three three point zero it adds pinning wes are you familiar with pinning um i mean i think in the in the general case but not for rust so tell tell me about this so i'm gonna again this is a 45 minute radio show so you can pin a certain let's say object which do not throw things at me rust people you know let's say data structure yeah, that's a better term. And so so just to, to clarify up about it, this is a Rust-specific thing called pinning, not related to dependencies or like uh, the other things I might have think about. You know, this is in the language, but you have to be on Rust 1.33 or up, right? So basically you have a, you have a pin type and an unpin marker trait, which that, there's a lot of words there. So basically the, the um, object, actually they use object. I'm surprised they use object and not data structure. That's very interesting to me in the documentation. Um, basically, making something a pin means it will not move in physical memory. So let's get our oscilloscopes and let's get down into our RAM, boys and girls. Literally, the object that you have created as a pin is not going to move on the physical RAM. That's in a simplified version of what's happening here. Yes, I know there's different cases for swap. Please don't email in, but... Yeah. Ah, right, right. Yeah. The, the different levels of memory and the abstractions that you're specifically writing towards. So why did this stand out to you? I mean, I can see how it might be useful, but even as as this blog post said, you know, they say, this feature will largely be used by library authors. And it makes me wonder, what are you doing with it? Nothing yet. But, um, and then bringing it back to .NET, so .NET introduced async await, which is an easy way to do concurrency where the code looks procedural, but actually like spins up a million threads and does whatever the hell it needs to do. You might use this for long-running operations, for network calls, for if you've ever worked with BLE, you probably use it a lot because Bluetooth low energy is surprisingly not uh, reliable. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And, and we've seen that pattern, right? Um .NET developed it or fleshed out at least oh, no, that Micro, implementation. Yeah, Microsoft came up with it. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, but we've seen it move. Yeah, like uh, you you can do it in, in JavaScript. You can do it in Python. Java has it now, actually. Yeah, for some weird version of it. So this is the first step, or maybe not the first, but this is a step towards async await in Rust. Which you may think, okay, why do we want that in Rust? That's usually used as a lower level language. But think about it. Do you want to write all these cases, or do you want to have something? You know, that in six months when you come back to read the code is a lot simpler to understand. Yeah, it's a nice option, right? Maybe in some hot inner loop somewhere you you can't use it or you need to roll your own locking and threading and, and all that. But if you don't have to, right? Because basically this stuff all generates these complicated state machines and, and callbacks. Um, I don't, I don't want to write that. Well, right. It's going to be like .NET, where there's a bunch of crazy cases where async await makes no sense, and you have to write everything yourself, just like you used to. But for you know ninety percent of the cases, this is the answer. 
and it seems like it could be especially useful in Rust as, you know, it, it's already lower level. So if this can make something yeah. just a little bit easier, as you said, to come back, to understand, and to work on again, I'm all for it. Yeah, I think it's a great addition. Um, I'm very curious to see how Rust is going to implement async away. And I think, you know, we're just going to have to wait for that. But I have lots of questions about how that's going to work particularly in an embedded context. Mm, yes, you might have a lot of concerns about uh, yeah, and the answer how that works. It just won't, right? Like, but yeah, we'll see. Interesting. That's certainly an evolving story. And, you know, as you said, Rust, Rust is moving fast. That might be a feature. That might just be the next thing that I, I really have to just bite the bullet and dig more into Rust. That's right. So I hear you're writing this new hot language from Microsoft, Wes? What's going on here? Yeah, Rust, that's that's so old and busted, Mike. I'm writing Bosk. I don't know if we decided how to pronounce this. Bosk, I don't know. Bosk, yeah. B-O-S-Q-U-E. And it was just announced this previous week. It derives from a combination of TypeScript-inspired syntax and types, plus some ML, meaning the ML fam- family of languages, not machine learning, and Node and JavaScript-inspired semantics. And the words of my cousin Teal'c, your words mean nothing to me. Basically, it seems like, and we should be clear off the top, as as they say, as the project lead himself says, this is this is a research project. It's not meant to be your new production language. It's just something Microsoft's playing with as ways to start exploring how to make how to make programming better. And and that actually seems to be one of their big pushes here because they're they're almost preaching it as a as a new way to approach programming. So there's a paper that's out by Mark Marin and and he calls it out right at the top, regularized programming. And the comparison is to the old style of of what was called structured programming, right? Um you know, I don't love the way it looks, but I think there are a lot of interesting ideas here and I I think in the spirit of, you know, a lot of people that I find inspiring, I think that the, the regardless of the specifics of this implementation, which we can talk more about because there are some interesting concepts in here, I think the main goal of trying to reduce complexity um, and making making and designing languages with that as one of the primary motivating factors is very much something I like. I have been reading, I've read the GitHub, I've read both the articles we have in the show notes. What is new about this language? I mean, it's taking the ideas and the concepts in terms of, uh, you know, methodological concepts of strong typing and those of functional programming and just basically merging them together. Like, what am I missing, right? Like, Yeah, you're right. I mean, so I think it can be said that much of the stuff that's in here, I don't know about what other languages are doing. Like, one of the features is this typed string sort of thing where just like a way to declare types of strings and lift some of the identification into the type system. Strings are terrible, yes. <laughs> right, and we often end up just programming with a whole bunch of strings we pass around. Um, right. But you are right that, that much of this stuff, and, and I guess they, they almost say it themselves, that is, is flowing out of, out, of, out of research, out of other things that have already been implemented or are seen in other languages and communities. Like, you know, there are no explicit looping constructs in Bosk. I like that. I think that's good. But there are plenty of other languages that that lack that. Okay, but like, there's also like, I don't know, you can like, do a map over things, right? <laughs> like, isn't that just going to become the poor man's loop? Or am I just being overly cynical here? 
Well, sure. But when you, and in the simple cases, it already is. But even when you just have math, right, you've you've already decomplected something because in the simple case, sure, a loop is basically just the same thing. You're iterating over each item and then doing something. But it can get more complicated because you have an arbitrary scope inside there that you can just keep your own state. You can mess with stuff. Mm. It is not fundamentally tied to a mapping over one thing. And so I think that's the level that they're trying to get at here is to say, like, yes, you understand this. Yes, these are these are equivalent in terms of theory, but this is a more ergonomic and safer way to to model this program or this problem. And we think these should be the default tools available to you, not these older imperative style. Right. I agree with that. But like Microsoft already has F sharp and and TypeScript. Yeah, TypeScript. I have lots of problems with TypeScript. <laughs> you know I don't like TypeScript, right? But you should just learn ECMAScript and be done with it. But like one of my hobby horses is that people are writing these crazy algorithms in C sharp and doing these like low-level projects where they need data integrity and all this kind of fun stuff ought to really be using F-sharp. And they're not. So, I mean, anything that's invented is great. I don't want to, like, take away from that. But F-sharp solves many of these problems. Maybe not in the same way, like the whole scoping thing, fair enough. But I don't know. If I were the Microsoft language team, I might, like, you know this, Wes, it's my hobby horse, right? .NET developers who aren't data scientists, because data scientists love F-sharp, need to pay more attention to F-sharp. It's just, it's a really good language, and it solves many of the problems that BOSC, is that what we decided, BOSC or BOSC? I think we're just going to use both, and right. uh, we'll see what we're shakes go out. with it. Like claims to solve, and I'm not like this is definitely an achievement, but I mean fsharp.org, guys, it's it's great. Trust me, like it's it'll change your life. No, I mean you are right, and um, I've I've seen some commentary kind of wondering like, is this just some sort of power grab? These ideas don't look new. Just just like you were saying, right? Like. And so it depends on how much you read. Are these claims? Right. Be- this this exists in another Microsoft language. It's called F Sharp. Like, sorry to interrupt, but that that that's my entire criticism of this. Right. Like, we should make F Sharp better because it's already awesome. Like, uh, you know, that's. I think that I think that is reasonable. Thank you. Um, I I will say I do I do believe that there's value in further exploring this stuff. Oh yeah, no, no, I'm not saying we shouldn't have new languages. I'm just saying like it's frustrating maybe that energy is being spent here, but not necessarily like you're like you're saying like we could be evangelizing more for F sharp and talking about F sharp with some of the time that we're using right now even here. Right. So let me make an argument by parallel. Right. When Canonical did a bunch of crack and decided to make Unity. I remember the days. That was a bad idea that did not work out. I mean, I think some people, Unity 7 lovers, would um, perhaps disagree. But you're right. I mean, they've, they're no longer doing it. Right, but you could re-implement the Unity style in GNOME very easily via extensions. And I'm sorry, non-Linux users, but go down this road with me. There is a limited amount of deep engineering expertise to be used. 
Like these are literally concepts that like when I talk to C-sharp developers who are like doing large data things or like mathematical processing, they're like, oh, .NET sucks. I'm like, actually, no, it's C-sharp. It just isn't meant for this, right? C-sharp is an object-oriented language that is meant to build you a pretty battleship-grade web uh, application. And these days, you know, a server app, if you want to do a ASP core, um, or even back in the day, ASP.NET. Right. But it's not necessarily there to do your like high-level data processing pipelines. Mm-hmm. Right. There is a solution. And the beautiful thing about .NET and the CLR is you can mix F-sharp and C-sharp. You can have an entire module in F-sharp that just like does all of that. So like if, if BOSC, I'm calling it BOSC, I've just made a decision, is better fabulous right like i am not i am all you know what i'm using rust it's hard to be more hipster than rust but it's weird to me that the same company like you know what JetBrains has kotlin they're not like competing with themselves right mm, yeah so like where does f sharp and and, and bosk begin like i from what i've read on the github page and the commits Bosk is maybe a more pure implementation where F sharp is kind of in this weird space of having to be married to like we have to be compatible with the CLR and C sharp and blah blah blah. Yeah, so I think there is that like it is um you know they've built it on top uh, I think it's implemented mostly in TypeScript right now. Um so it's it's built on a different runtime which is kind of interesting. Also I would assume I would assume that Bosk in particular probably doesn't run hardly anywhere in the future. Like, I don't know that it will go anywhere. I bet we will see some ideas filter into F-sharp. I mean, that's a damn shame, though. Like, as, as a, like I am an, you know, if I'm a shill, I'm an F-sharp shill, right? Like, I don't want Boss to die. I would love Boss to become one of these languages that compiles into WebAssembly. Is that crazy? No, no. I mean, I think actually, I think that's on something that they're interested in. So it is, I think it, it's just an interesting, I mean, just that we hadn't talked about this at all and that you had these thoughts and we've had such a, we have disparate views here. If this, even if this isn't the thing, you know, isn't the, the next playground, clearly people care about this stuff and maybe that's enough, right? Like, so focal point, and they've already had a lot of issues opened up on the GitHub project, kind of reflecting on that. How are we going to do, right? There was questions about how, how might this language handle asynchronous programming? So there's lots to be left there. I don't know. I, I think it is trying to still find the right fit of, you know, how do we combine all of these new ideas that different languages have, and what does it look like to have all of them in one place, and can that be simple, functional, and pleasant to use? No, I think it's great. I mean, Wes, can I make a crazy prediction that we'll cover in a year from now? Yes, you can. I think what's going to happen is that functional programming is actually going to become the default. I sure hope. You're right. You know, I think uh, last week we talked about Dr. Armstrong, right? The creator mm, of yes. Erlang. And he had a paper, what is it? Um, OO sucks or, right? Oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, there's a, one of his older blog articles. I think he's right, actually. The more, the more complicated applications I've had to write, the less and less I've wanted to architect things in an object-oriented way. I, I really do believe that, like, if you're a young developer, because we get this email all the time, Learn an OO language like Java or C Sharp just to be, you know, marketable to. Yeah, you got to be conversant with these because they are the dominant right. paradigm. Well, there's hundreds of millions of lines of code in them, right? Yeah, you're going to touch them. The future, I, you know what? Ring the bell, Wes. Ring it. 
West was right. It's going to be functional. Things like Clojure, things like Rust, things like Haskell, F-sharp. I have to throw my F-sharp in there because I'm defending it to my bloody death. That's the future. Like, I can't tell you. I write tons of code for clients. I write tons of code for myself, tons of open source. And for me personally, at this juncture in my life, it's always the functional code that's most interesting because it's the algorithmic code. It's either doing the like crazy uh, 3D file processing or it's doing the, uh, you know, like the M, like uh, a new ML project coming on in a few weeks. Like, I don't know. OO is for GUIs. Send your hit mail to Wes at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Well, and then even even there, I think, I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it, did, it does pair well with their things like, um, you know, it, it just has existed there for a long time. And there's there are good parts about a lot of the standards that get associated with object-oriented programming. I think, you know, the push for towards polymorphism um, has been really good. And you, you that, that generally has made programming better. And we have better ways to do abstractions. So I think we've learned, right? We've taken stuff like uh, like type classes or traits and been able to have that sort of stuff a la carte without having these imposed hierarchies and this rigid style. Um, I, I also think you're right that frequently you can find, it, while it may be foreign and, and look just overly terse, you can get a really good coupling of the problem domain and then the code that's used to represent it. When you've abstracted it well and you're using some of these functional paradigms, because more and more it does look like just a, a data pipeline process, and you can understand in com- decomposed steps, because composition is so important in functional programming, it's then easy to decompose and understand what each step is doing. Compare that with like a whole bunch of different objects all pulling strings on each other. It's just madness. Well, no, I think you're completely right, though. I mean, in terms of uh, functional being better architected, but I think we should move on, because I feel like we're getting, you know what, Wes? My beard, uh, do we even want to say it? I don't want to say this on the air. You know what? I'm going to say it anyway. I have gray in my beard now. Ooh, you're so distinguished, Mr. Dominic. No, uh, you know what it is? I'm a has-been. Just like Objective-C, which is still the one language to rule them all, one language to bind them all, one language. Never mind. Um, what about, you know what I hate? Other than Swift developers, of course. What do you hate, Mike? Do you know? Thank you. I hate when I accidentally commit my AWS secrets into my damn GitLab account. Yeah, don't we all? It's a B. Yeah, I, I saw this thing out from uh, AWS Labs, which is part of the AWS's open source work. Yes, it exists, if you didn't know that. Um, actually, they, they do a fair bit, bit that you just don't always hear about it. I thought they hated Linux. Wait a minute. I thought they just forked everything and just went on their hands. Yeah, unless you follow their developer blogs, it can be sometimes hard to notice all the open source work, but they employ so many people and obviously are built on so much open source technology, you kind of just have to end up giving back. I've played with a couple other sort of solutions for this, like, um, what's it called? I think Trufflehound um, is one that basically just looks for high entropy strings in your repositories and, and alerts you to them. Git Secrets is, is a little bit different, and it does have some sort of um, configuration so that it, by default understands AWS. So if you're a big AWS user and you really, you know, one of the first things, especially 
when you're setting up in an AWS environment, you got to like, all right, I go figure out my different credentials and I got to get my system provisioned and set up so it can talk to AWS and then run against the staging environment. But I need those credentials over here, but I really then need the, the production credentials when I switch to broad and how do I do that? And it shouldn't be in the repo. And especially maybe you're working with multiple teams or some sort of contracting company you've hired. Just a mistake. And if you've ever had to go back and clean up secrets out of a repository, secrets are annoying. I have not used um, Git secrets, but I just thought it was neat that there was a semi-first-party solution from Amazon for this. I don't know how easy it would be to make this work for secrets for other cloud providers or other projects. Maybe go give it a try. Or, dear audience member, perhaps you have a preferred solution for this. You've already got it integrated with your CI system because you're just that cool. Let us know. Coder.show slash contact. Now, Mike, I know you, being the generous soul that you are, well, you've got something of a contest going on, don't you? Yeah, so I would prefer that my son not die in floods or, you know, like, you know, arid landscapes. I'm going to second you on that one. Thank you. Um, And this extends to everybody's children, right? Sons, daughters, whatever. Uh, So we at the Mad Botter are sponsoring a little competition. Now, you have till the end of May. If you are a high school or middle school student, or indeed you know one, please share the info. Write up with a technical diagram and a project synopsis your plan to combat global warming using Linux. Now, the using Linux part is important. It has to be using Linux and preferably open source software, but the condition is using Linux. We're going to pick one winner from the high school bracket and the middle school bracket and each winner is going to get a darter pro from system 76 this is on my dime you know i think we're going to do these about once a quarter for kids we will be verifying that you are actually a high school student or middle school student of course but you know if you're listening think outside the box right because wes and i talked a lot about what did we talk about f sharp today and a few other languages. Don't don't think that you have to be married to what we've talked about. I'm sure Wes would agree that it's preferable for you to kind of just let it go, right? Just think how you know. Yeah, that's one of the advantages of things like this. Is you know we're we're old and stuck in our ways. Um, we're old and stuck in our ways, and you know oftentimes can't see the best solution for something, and it takes out of the box ideas, things that might seem just unintuitive or wrong or or broken that end up really shedding light on something. Right. Right. And this is definitely my, you know, this is my own initiative. This is a Team B thing. You know, I had a kid email in, talked about it privately in Tampa a few weeks ago, and say, well, should I do this Linux Academy course? Linux Academy, there's no preference, right? If you're a member, if you're not, whatever you want to do. If your thing is a completely, you know, hell, if you can solve global warming but real basic Go on. And I have a friend named Brian who you should talk to, who were not friends, but it'd be fun. Too too soon? No, amazing. Amazing. <laughs> well, Mike, this is this is real generous of you, and uh, I'm excited to see what, what comes out. Um, well, you, if you, you know to... what I figured, Wes? Hmm. Instead of pouring gin into laptops, I should just give them to kids who might save my life. And that means more gin for you. And more sales for System76, who, by the way, keeps sending me nasty messages about you being prettier than me. We'll have to have a conversation offline. We sure will. Well, if you want to go find out more, of course, you can find that stuff in our show notes, coder.show slash 355. Or, well, you can just follow Mike's wonderful company, The Mad Botter Inc., on Twitter there at The Mad Botter Inc. 
Mike, you're on Twitter too. What's your handle? At Dumanuko. I'm there as well. I'm at Wes Payne. You can also find, well, the whole darn network and with, you know, links to all the other hosts that are on there too at Jupiter Signal or just head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. That's going to be it for us today. But if you want more, you'll find the whole catalog there and you'll find the calendar where you can come join us here for the live show every Monday. Thank you so much for joining. We'll see you then. We'll see you then.